Chapter twenty three of The Glory of Clementina Wing by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty three. The next morning Clementina put off a sitter, a thing which she had never done before, and, letting work go hang, made an unprecedented irruption into Russell Square. "'It's about this dinner of yours,' she said as soon as Quixtus appeared. "'I telephoned you yesterday that I was coming.' "'And I said, my dear Clementina, that I was more than delighted.' "'It was the morose warthog inside me that made me decline,' she said frankly. "'But there's a woman of sense also inside me that can cut the throat of the warthog when it likes. "'So here I am, a woman of sense. "'Now will you let a woman of sense run this dinner-party for you? "'Oh, I know what you may be thinking,' she went on hastily, without giving him time to reply. "'I'm not going to suggest liver and bacon and a boiled potato. "'I know how things should be done better than you.' "'I'm afraid I'm inexperienced in entertainments of this kind,' said Quixtus, with a smile. "'Spriggs generally attends to such matters.' "'Spriggs and I will put our heads together,' said Clementina. "'I want you to give rather a wonderful dinner-party. "'What kind of table decorations have you?' Spriggs was summoned. He noted the dining-room table with family plate and table centres and solid-cut glass. His pride lay in a mid-Victorian epergne that at every banquet in the house proudly took the place of honour with a fat load of grapes and oranges and apples. Clementina set apart a few articles of silver and condemned the rest, including the epergne, as horrors. "'You'll let me have the pleasure, Ephraim,' she said, "'of providing all the flowers and making out a scheme of decoration. "'Anything I want I'll get myself and make you a present of it. "'I'm by way of being an artist, you know, so it will be all right.' "'Could anyone doubt it?' said Quixtus. "'I'm very much indebted to you, Clementina.' "'A woman comes in useful now and then. "'I've never done a hand's turn for you, and it's time I began. "'You'll want a hostess, won't you?' "'Dear me!' said Quixtus, somewhat taken aback. "'I suppose I shall. I, I never thought of it.' "'I'll be hostess,' said Clementina. "'I'm a kind of aunt to Tommy and Etta, for whom you're giving the party. I'm a kind of connection of yours. And you and I are kind of father and mother to Sheila. So it will be quite correct. Let me have your list of guests, and don't you worry your head about anything.' Clementina, in her sweeping mood, was irresistible. Quixter's mild man, could do no more than acquiesce gratefully. It was most gracious of Clementina to undertake these perplexing arrangements. New sides of her character exhibited themselves every day. There was only one flaw in the newly revealed Clementina, her unaccountable disparagement of Mrs. Fontaine. But even this defect she remedied of her own accord. "'I take back what I said about Mrs. Fontaine,' she said abruptly. "'I was in a warthoggy humour. She's a charming woman with brilliant social gifts.' Quixtus beamed, whereat Clementina felt more warthoggy than ever, but she beamed also with a mansuetude that would have deceived Mrs. Fontaine herself. Clementina, after an intimate interview with the first resentful, then obfuscated, and finally boneless and submissive Spriggs, went her way, a sparkle of triumph in her eyes. And then began laborious days, during which she sacrificed many glorious hours of daylight to the arrangements for the dinner-party. She spent an incredible time in antique shops and schools of art needlework, and even haunted places near the London docks, hunting for the glass and embroideries and other things she needed. She ordered rare flowers from florists. She wasted her evenings over a watercolour design for the table decoration, and over designs for the menu and name-cards. "'It's going to be a dinner that people shall remember,' she said to Etta. 
"'It's going to be splendid,' said Etta. "'You think of everything, darling, except the one thing, the, the most important.' "'What's that, child?' "'Have you got a dress to wear, darling?' "'Dress?' echoed Clementina, staring at the child. "'Why, of course, I've got my black.' Etta stood aghast. "'That old thing you took with you packed anyhow on the motor-trip?' "'Naturally. Isn't it good enough for you?' "'It's not for me,' said Etta, growing bold. "'I love you in anything. It's for the other people. Do go and get yourself a nice frock. There's still time. I've never liked to tell you before, dear, but the old one gapes at the back, and—' She paused dramatically. "'Gapes dreadfully.' "'Oh, Lord, let it gape!' cried Clementina impatiently. "'Don't worry me!' But Etta continued to worry, with partial success. Clementina obstinately refused to buy a new raiment, but consented to call him Miss Pugsley, the little dressmaker round the corner in the King's Road, who fashioned such homely garments as Clementina deigned to wear, and to hand over the old black dress to her for alterations and repairs. Etta sighed, and spent anxious hours with Miss Pugsley, and forced a grumbling and sarcastic Clementina to stand half-clad while the frumpy rag attained something resembling a fit. "'At any rate, there are no seams burst, and it does hook together,' said Etta, dismally surveying the horror at the final fitting. "'Huh!' said Clementina, contemplating herself wryly in the mirror. "'I suppose I look like a lady. Now I hope you're satisfied.' Meanwhile, such painting as she did in the intervals of her daily excursions abroad progressed exceedingly. Tommy, coming into the studio one evening, caught sight of the picture of the lady in the grey dress standing on its easel. "'Stunning!' he cried. "'Stunning! You can almost hear the stuff rustle. How the dickens do you get your texture? You're a holy mystery. By Jove, you are! All this—he ran his thumb parallel with a fold in the drapery—all this is a miracle!' He turned and faced her with worshipping eyes, in which the tears were ready to spring. "'By God, you're great!' The artist was thrilled by the homage. The woman laughed inwardly. She had dashed at the tasks triumphantly, and as if by magic the thing had come out right. She was living, these days, intensely. There was no miracle that she could not work. A morning or two afterwards she issued a ukase to Tommy and Etta that they were to accompany her on an automobile excursion. Tommy, to whom she had constituted herself taskmistress, boyishly glad of the holiday, flew down Romney Place and found a great luxurious hard motor standing at her door. Presently Etta arrived, and then Clementina and Sheila and the young lovers started. Where were they going? Clementina explained. As she could not keep Sheila in London during August, she had decided on taking a furnished cottage in the country. Estate agents had highly recommended one at Molam on Thames. She was going down to have a look at it, and wanted their advice. The motor ploughed through the squalor of Brentford, and then sped along the Bath Road, through Colnbrook and Slough and Maidenhead, and through the glorious greenery in which Henley is embowered, and on and on by winding shady roads, with here and there a flashing glimpse of river, by fields lush in golden pasture, up and down the gentle hills, through riverside villages, where sleeping gaiety brings a smile to the eyes, between the high hedges of Oxfordshire lanes, through the cool verdant mystery of beech-woods, until it entered through a great gateway, and proceeded up a long avenue of elms, and stopped before a slumbering red-brick manor-house. "'This the cottage?' asked Tommy. "'Do you think it's a waterfall?' asked Clementina. They alighted. A caretaker took the order to view given by the estate agents, and conducted the party over the place. 
the more Tommy saw, the more amazed did he grow. There was a park, a garden, a pergola of roses, a couple of tennis courts, a lawn reaching to the river. The house, richly furnished throughout, contained rooms innumerable, four or five sitting-rooms, large dining-room, billiard-room, countless bedrooms, a magnificent studio. In the grounds, another studio. "'I'll take it,' said Clementina. "'But, my dear,' gasped Tommy, "'have you considered? I don't want to be impertinent, but the rent of this place must be a thousand pounds a minute.' She drew him apart from Etta and Sheila. "'My dear boy,' she said, "'for no reason that I can see, I've lived all my life on twopence a year. It's only quite lately that I've realised that I'm a very rich woman, and can do anything more or less I please. I'm going to take this place for August and September, and hire a motor-car, and you and Etta are going to stay with me, and you can each bring as many idiot boys and girls as you choose, and I shall paint, and you can paint, and Sheila can run about the garden, and we're all going to enjoy ourselves.' Tommy thrust his hands into the pockets of his grey flannels, and declared she was a wonder. Whereupon they proceeded to Molem, and after lunch at the Black Boy, motored back to Chelsea. These were days filled with a myriad activities. The dinner-party engaged her curious attention. She sent back proofs of the menu and name-cards time after time to the firm of art-printers, before she was satisfied. Then she took them to Quixter's. He was delighted. "'But, my dear Clementino, why are you taking all this ridiculous trouble?' She laughed in her gruff way, and summoned Spriggs to another dark and awful interview. A day or two before the dinner, Mrs. Fontaine, who, although she had suggested the idea, did not view a dinner-party as a world-shaking phenomenon, bethought her of the matter. A pretty little note had summoned Quixters to tea. They were alone. "'I've been wondering, my dear Dr. Quixters,' she said sweetly, her soft eyes on his, as soon as she had heard of the acceptances of the people in whom she was interested. "'I've been wondering whether we are good enough friends for me to be audacious.' He smiled on assurance. "'If I brought you a few flowers for the table, would you accept them? And if you did, would you let me come and arrange them for you? It would be such a pleasure. Even the best-trained servants can't give the little touch that a woman can.' Quixtus blushed. It was difficult to be ungracious to the flower of womanhood. But the flower of womanhood had come too late in the day with her gracious proposal. He explained, wishing to soften the necessary refusal, that he had already called in the help of his artistic friends, Miss Clementina Wing and Tommy Burgrave. "'Why didn't you send for me? Didn't you think of me?' "'I did not venture,' said he. "'I have been deluding myself with the fancy that we were friends.' She sighed and looked at him with feminine significance. Nothing venture, nothing win. But Quixtus, simple soul, was too genuinely distressed by obvious happenings to follow the insidious scent. With great wisdom, Clementina had shown him her water-colour design, and he knew that Mrs. Fontaine, with all her daintiness, could not compete with the faultless taste and poetic imagination of a great artist. He wondered why so finely sensitive a nature as the flower of womanhood did not divine this. Her insistence jarred on him ever so little, and yet he shrank from wounding susceptibilities. "'I never thought you would be interested in such trivial domestic matters,' said he. "'It is the little things that count.' For the first time in his intercourse with her he felt uncomfortable. Here was the lady maintaining her reproach of neglect. If she took so much interest in this wretched dinner-party, why had she not offered her services at once?' 
Unwittingly, he contrasted her inaction with Clementina's irresistible energy. In answer to her remark, he said, smiling, "'I'm not so sure about that, although it's often asserted. We lawyers have an axiom, de minimis non curat lex.' "'Pity a poor woman. What on earth does that mean?' He translated, "'The law is one thing, and human sentiment another.' With all her rough contradiction and violent assertion, Clementina never pinned him down to a fine point of sentimental argument. There was a spaciousness about Clementina wherein he could breathe freely. This close atmosphere began to grow distasteful. There was a slight pause, which Mrs. Fontaine filled in by handing him his second cup of tea. "'Miss Clementina Wing,' said he, dashing for the open, "'is so intimately associated not only with the object of our little entertainment, but also with myself in other matters, that I could do no less than consult her.' Lena Fontaine bent forward, sugar tongs in hand, ready to drop a lump into his cup, a charmingly intimate pose. "'Of course I understand, dear Dr. Quixtus. And is she really coming to the dinner?' "'Why not?' "'She's so... so unconventional. I thought she never went into society.' "'She is honouring me by making an exception in my case,' replied Quixtus, a little stiffly. "'I'm delighted to hear it,' she said sweetly but in her heart she bitterly resented Clementina's interference. She would get even with the fish-fag for this. On the morning of the dinner party, Clementina sent for Tommy. He found her, as usual, at work. She laid down her brush and handed him the water-colour design. "'I'm too busy to-day to fool about with this silly nonsense. I can't spare any more time for it. You can carry out the scheme quite as well as I can. You'll find everything there. Do you mind?' Tommy did not mind. In fact, he was delighted at the task. The artist in him loved to deal with things of beauty and exquisite colours. "'Shall I give an eye to the wines?' "'Everything's quite settled. I saw to it yesterday. Now clear out. I'm busy. And look here,' she cried, as he was mounting the staircase. "'I'm not going to have you or Etta fooling around the place to-day. I'm going to paint till the very last minute.' She resumed her painting. A short while afterwards a note and a parcel came from Etta. From the parcel she drew a long pair of black gloves. She threw them to the maid, Eliza. "'What shall I do with them, ma'am?' "'Wear them at your funeral,' said Clementina. A few minutes before eight, Quixtus stood in the great drawing-room waiting to receive his guests. On the stroke came Abelcon Cannon, scrupulously punctual, and Etta followed by Tommy, who, having given the last touches to the table, waylaid her on the stairs. Then came Lady Louisa Morling and Lena Fontaine, demure in pale heliotrope. After them, Lord and Lady Radfield, he, tall and distinguished, with white moustache and imperial, she, much younger than he, dumpy, expensively dressed, wearing a false air of vivacity. Then came in quick succession General and Lady Barnes, Griffiths, Quixus's colleague in the Anthropological Society, and his wife, John Passford, the Royal Academician, Mr. and Mrs. Wilmore Jackson, physically polished, vacant, opulent friends of Mrs. Fontaine. Gradually the party assembled, and the hum of talk filled the room. During an interval, Quixtus turned to Tommy. What had become of Clementina, who had promised to play hostess? Tommy could give no information. All he knew about her was that he had stopped at her door and offered her a lift in his cab, and Eliza had come down with a verbal message to the effect that he was to go away and that Miss Wing was not coming in his cab. Tommy opined that Clementina was in one of her crotchety humours. Possibly she would not turn up at all. Etta took Tommy aside. 
"'I'm sure that old black frock has split down the back, and Elijah's mending it with black thread.' Only the Quins and Clementina to arrive, and at ten minutes past the Quins, Sir Edward, Member of Parliament, and Lady, genial, flustered folk with many apologies for lateness. The hands of the clock on the mantelpiece marked the quarter. Still no Clementina. Quixtus grew uneasy. What could have happened? Lena Fontaine turned from him and whispered to Lord Radfield. She has forgotten to put on her boots, and is driving back for them. Then Spriggs appeared at the door, and announced, "'Miss Clementina Wing!' And Clementina sailed into the room. For the first and only time in his life did Quixtus lose his courtliness of manner. For a perceptible instant he stood stock-still, and stared, open-mouthed. It was a Clementina that he had never seen before, a Clementina that no one had ever seen before. It was Clementina in a hundred-guinea gown, gold silk gleaming through ambergris net, Clementina exquisitely corseted and revealing a beautifully curved and rounded figure, Clementina with a smooth, clear, olive skin, with her fine black hair coiled by a miracle of the hairdresser's art, majestically on her head, and set off with a great diamond comb, Clementina wearing diamonds at her throat, Clementina perfectly gloved, Clementina carrying an ostrich feather fan, Clementina erect, proud, smiling, her strong face illuminated by her fine eyes a glitter with suppressed excitement. Clementina, a very great lady, and almost a beautiful woman. Those who knew her stared like Quixtus. Those who did not looked at her appreciatively. She sailed across the room, hand outstretched to Quixtus. "'I'm so sorry I'm late, and so sorry I could not run in today. I've been up to my ears in work. I hope Tommy has been a satisfactory lieutenant.' "'He has most faithfully carried out your instructions,' said Quixtus, recovering his balance. Clementina smiled on Mrs. Fontaine. "'How do you do? How charming to meet you again. But you're looking pale to-night, my dear, quite fagged out. I hope nothing's the matter.' She turned round quickly, leaving Lena Fontaine speechless with amazement and indignation, and shook hands with the astonished Admiral. Was this regal-looking woman the same paint-daub rabbit-skinner of the studio?' He murmured vague nothings. "'Well, my dears?' Tommy and Etta, thus greeted, stood paralysed before her, like village children at a school feast when they are addressed by the awe-inspiring squire's lady. "'Pinch me, pinch me hard,' Tommy whispered, when Clementina had turned to meet Lord Radfield, whom Quixtus was presenting. "'I believe I have the pleasure of taking you down to dinner,' said Lord Radfield. "'I'm a sort of brevet hostess in this house,' said Clementina. A bad one, I'm afraid, seeing how late I am. Spriggs announced dinner. Quixtus led the way with Lady Radfield. Clementina, on Lord Radfield's arm, closed the procession. The company took their places in the great dining-room. Quixtus, at the end of the table by the door, sat between Lady Radfield and Lady Louisa. Clementina at the foot between Lord Radfield and General Barnes. Lena Fontaine had her place as near Clementina as possible, between Lord Radfield and Griffiths, a dry, splenetic man who had taken her in. Clementina had thus arranged the table-plan. The scheme of decoration was too striking in its beauty not to arouse immediate and universal comment. It was half barbaric. Rich Chinese gold embroideries on the damask, black and gold lacquer urns, a great black and gold lacquer tray, black irises with golden tongues in gold-dust Venetian glass, tawny orchids flaring profusely among the black and gold, here and there, shining through greenery, 
the glow of golden fruit, and, insistent down the long table, the cool sheen of ambergris grapes. Glass and silver and damask, black and gold and ambergris, audacious, startling, then appealing to the eye as perfect in its harmony. Quixtus and Tommy each proclaimed the author. All eyes were directed to Clementina. Attention was diverted to the name and menu cards. Lord Bradfield put his name-card into his pocket. "'It is not every day in the week that one takes away a precious work of art from a London dinner-party.' Clementina enjoyed a little triumph, the flush of which mounted to her dark face. With the flush, and in the setting she had prepared for herself, she looked radiant. Her late entrance had produced a dramatic effect. The immediate concentration everyone on her work, added to the commonplace of her reputation, had at once established her as the central figure in the room, and she sat, as hostess, at the foot of the table, a symphony in ambergris, gold, and black. Woman, in the use of woman's weapons, has evolved no laws of fence. "'One might almost have said she did it on purpose,' murmured the ingenuous Tommy. "'Did what?' asked Etta. "'Why, use the table as a personal decoration. Don't you see how it all leads up to her? Leads up, by Jove, to her eyes and the diamonds in her hair. And I say, doesn't it wipe out Mrs. Fontaine?' Tommy was right. Lena Fontaine's pale colouring, her white face and chestnut hair, faded into nothingness against the riot of colour. The pale heliotrope of her dress was killed. She was insignificant to the eye. Conscious of this eclipse, hating herself for having put on heliotrope, and yet wondering which of her usual half-toned costumes she could have worn, she paid her tribute to the designer with acid politeness. She wished she had not come. Clementina as fish-fag and Clementina as princess were two totally different people. She could deal with the one. How could she deal with the other? The irony in Clementina's glance made her quiver with fury. Her heart still burned her with the indignation of the first greeting. She felt herself to be in the midst of hostile influences. Griffiths, a man of unimaginative fact, plunged headlong into a discourse on comparative statistics of accidents to railway servants. She listened absently, angry with Quixus for pairing her with so dreary a fellow. Griffiths, irritated by her non-intelligence, transferred the lecture to his other neighbour as soon as an opportunity occurred. Lena Fontaine awaited her chance with Lord Radfield. But Clementina held him amused and interested, and soon drew General Barnes into the talk. With a slough of her old outer trappings, Clementina had cast off the slough of her abrupt and unconventional speech. She was a woman of acute intellect, wide reading, and wide observation. She had ideas and wit, and she had come out this evening flamingly determined to use all her powers. Her success sent her pulses throbbing. Here were two men, at the outset of her experiment, hanging on her words, paying indubitable homage, not to the woman of brains, not to the well-known painter, but to the essential woman herself. The talk quickly became subtle personal, a quick interchange of hinted sentiment that makes for charm. When Lord Radfield at last turned to Lena Fontaine, she could offer him nothing but commonplaces—Goodwood, a scandal or so, the fortunes of a bridge-club. Clementina adroitly brought them both quickly into her circle, and Lena Fontaine had the chagrin to see the politely bored old face suddenly lit up with reawakened interest. 
For a moment or two Lena Fontaine flashed into the talk, determined to offer battle. But after a while she felt dominated, cowed, with no fight left in her. The other woman ruled triumphant. Tommy could not keep his eyes off Clementina, and neglected Etta and his left-hand neighbour shamefully. An unprecedented rosiness of fingernails caught his keen vision. In awe-stricken tones he whispered to Etta, Manicured! Go on with your dinner, said Etta, and don't stare, Tommy, it's rude. She should have given us warning, groaned Tommy. We're too young to stand it. The exquisitely cooked and served meal proceeded. The French chef whom Clementine had engaged, and to whom she had given full scope for his art, had felt like an architect unrestricted by sight or expense, who can put into concrete form the dreams of a lifetime. John Parsfoot, the sculptor, sitting next to Lady Louisa, cried out to his host, "'This is not a dinner you've given us, Crixus, it's a poem!' Lady Louisa et on, too much absorbed in flavours for articulate thought. Crixus smiled. "'I'm not responsible.' The mistress of the feast is facing me at the other end. Parsford, who knew the Clementina of everyday life, threw up his hands in a Latin gesture which he had learned at the Beaux-Arts, and of which he was proud. The most remarkable woman of the century! I think you're right, said Quixtus. He looked down at the table, and caught her eye, and exchanged smiles. Now that he could adjust his mind to the concept of Clementina transfigured, he felt conscious of a breathless admiration. He grew absurdly impatient of the social conventions which pinned him in his seat, leagues of lacquer and orchids away from her. Idiotic envy of the two men whom she was fascinating by her talk entered his heart. She was laughing, showing her white, strong teeth, as only once before she had shown her teeth to him. He longed to escape from the vivaciously inane Lady Radfield and join the group at the other end of the table. Now and then his eye rested on Nina Fontaine, but she had almost faded out of sight. At the end of the dinner he held the door open for the ladies to pass out. Clementina, immediately preceded by Etta, whispered a needless recommendation not to linger. The door closed. Etta put her arm round Clementina's waist. "'Oh, darling, you look too magnificent for words! But why didn't you tell me? Why did you make a fool of me about the old black dress?' Clementina disengaged the girl's arm gently. "'My child,' she said, "'if I have the extra pressure of a feather on me, I'll yell. I'm suffering the tortures of the damned.' "'Oh, poor darling!' "'It's worth it, though,' said Clementina. When the men came upstairs, she again enjoyed a triumph. Men and women crowded round her and ministered instinctively to her talk. All the pent-up emotions, longings, laughter of years found torrential utterance. Parsford, standing over her, was amazed to discover how shapely were her bare arms, and how full and graceful her neck and shoulders. Quixtus talked for a few moments with the spotless flower of womanhood. In the stiff formality of the drawing-room she regained her individuality. With a resumption of her air of possession she patted a vacant seat on the couch beside her, and invited him to sit down. He obeyed. "'I thought you were going to neglect me altogether,' she said. He protested courteously. They sparred a little. Then Wilmore Jackson, polished and opulent, eyeglass in eye, crossed over to the couch, and Quixtus, rising with an eagerness that made Lena Fontaine bite her lip, yielded him the seat, and joined the charmed circle around Clementina. A little thrill of pleasure passed through him as she glanced a welcome. 
He gazed at her, fascinated. Something magnetic, feminine, he was too confused to know what, emanated from her and held him bound. Never in all the years of his knowledge of her had she appealed to him in this extraordinary manner. Why had the perfect neck and arms, the graceful figure, been hidden under shapeless garments? Why had the magnificence of her hair never been revealed? Why had grim frown and tightened lips locked within the features the laughter that now played about them? Once he had seen her face illuminated, at the hotel in Marseilles, but then it was with generous and noble feeling, and he had forgotten the disfiguring attire. But now she had the stateliness of a queen, and men hung around her, irresistibly attracted. At last Lady Radfield disentangled her lord, and departed. Others followed her example. The party broke up with the curious suddenness of London. In a brief interval between adieu, Quixtus and Clementina found themselves alone together. "'Well,' she asked, "'are you pleased?' "'Pleased? What a word! I'm dumbfounded. I've been blind, and my eyes are open. I never knew you before.' "'Because I have a decent gown on, I couldn't do less.' "'Because,' said he, "'I never knew what a beautiful woman you were.' The blood flew to her dark cheeks. She touched his arm and looked at him. "'Do you really think I look nice?' His reply was cut short by the Quinns coming up to take leave, but she read it on his face. The room thinned. Lena Fontaine came up. "'It's getting late. I must rescue Louisa and go.' "'Your dinner-party was quite a success, Dr. Quixtus.' "'So glad you think so,' said Clementina, "'especially now that I hear you were originally responsible for it. "'It was most kind of you to think of our dear young people. "'But don't go yet. Lady Louise is quite happy with Mr. Griffiths. "'He's feeding her with facts. "'Let us sit down for a minute or two and chat comfortably.' She moved to a sofa nearby, and motioned Mrs. Fontaine to a seat. The latter had to yield.' Quixtus drew up a chair. "'I've done a desperate thing,' said Clementina. "'I've taken the old manor-house at Molemont-Thames for August and September. It's as big as a hotel, and unless I fill it with people I shall be lost in it. Now everyone who wants to paint can have a studio. I myself am going to paint every morning, and anyone who wants to write can have a library. Sheila has picked out the library for you, Ephraim. Takes it for granted that you are coming. I hope you will. You'll break her heart if you don't. And there'll be a room for Mr. Huckabee, too. There'll be Etta and Tommy, of course, and the Admiral has promised to put in a week or two, and so on. And if you'll only come and stay August with me, my dear Mrs. Fontaine, my cup of happiness, unlike my house, will be full. Nina Fontaine gasped for an outraged moment. Then a swift, fierce temptation assailed her to take the enemy at her word and fight the battle. But, glancing at her, she saw the irony and banter and deadly purpose behind the glittering eyes, and her courage failed her. She was dominated again by the intense personality, frightened by her sudden and unexpected power. To stay under the woman's roof was an impossibility. "'I am sorry I can't accept such a charming invitation,' she said with a smile of the lips, "'for I have made an engagement with some friends to go to Dinar.' "'Oh, you're going to Dinar too,' cried Clementina. "'What do you mean by two? asked the other, shortly. "'I heard a rumour that Dr. Quixote was going there. "'It seems so silly that I paid no attention to it. "'Are you really going, Ephraim?' "'It was a trap deliberately laid. "'It was a defiance, a challenge. 
From the corner of the surface she stretched out her bare arm at full length, and laid her hand on his shoulder. The other woman looked white and pinched. Her eyes lost their allurement, and regarded him almost with enmity. "'You promised!' The words were snapped out before she could realise their significance. The instant after she could have thrust hat-pins into herself in punishment for folly. The manhood in Quixtus leapt at the lash. He knew then, with a startling clarity of assurance, that nothing in the world would induce him to strut about casinos with her in Dinar. He smiled courteously. "'Pardon me, dear Mrs. Fontaine. I made no promise. You must remember my little—my little trophy of the door and the peacocks.' Clementina, satisfied, withdrew her hand. "'Of course, dear Ephraim, if you prefer to go to Dinar with Mrs. Fontaine—' Lena Fontaine rose. "'Dr. Quixtus is obviously free to do what he chooses. I wish you would kindly leave me out of it.' Clementina rose too, and held out her hand. "'I will, my dear Mrs. Fontaine,' she said sweetly, "'if I can. Good-bye. It has been so delightful to have had you.' Her exit with Lady Louisa was confused with that of other stragglers. The Admiral, Etta, and Tommy remained. They all went down to Quixtus's study, the little back-room of the adventure of the drunken housekeeper, now cheery with decanters and siphons and cigarettes, and chatted intimately, till the Admiral reminded Etta that the horses— such fat horses, murmured Etta, had been standing for nearly an hour. Tommy accompanied father and daughter to the carriage. Quixtus and Clementina were left alone. "'Can I tell Sheila to-morrow that you're coming down to Moldham?' "'I think you can,' said Quixtus. "'I think you can, quite safely.' "'I'm sorry Mrs. Fontaine wasn't able to join us.' "'Now why?' he asked, vaguely conscious of outstretched claw and flying fur. "'Because she has such brilliant social gifts,' replied Clementina. There was a span of silence. Clementina inhaled a puff of the Turkish cigarette she had lit, and then threw it into the grate. "'For God's sake, my dear man, look in that drawer and give me some tobacco I can smoke. I smuggled it in yesterday.' Quixtus gave her the yellow package and papers, and she rolled a cigarette of Maryland and smoked contentedly. Tommy came in. "'Will you and these infants lunch with me tomorrow at the Carlton?' "'With pleasure,' said Quixtus. "'Do you know,' she said, "'I've never been inside the place. "'It'll be quite an adventure.' A few moments later Tommy and herself were speeding westward in a taxicab. The boy spoke little. All his darling conceptions of Clementina had been upheaved, dynamited, tossed into the air, and lay around him in amorphous fragments. Nor was she conversationally inclined. Tommy now was a tiny little speck in her horizon. Yet when the motor drew up at her house in Romney Place, and he opened the gate for her, something significant happened. He put out his hand. "'Good night, Clementina.' She laughed. "'Where are your manners, Tommy? Aren't you going to kiss me?' He hesitated, just the fraction of a second, and then kissed her. She ran up to her room, exultant, not because she had been kissed, far from it, but because he had hesitated. Between Clementina Fishfag and Clementina Princess was a mighty gulf. She knew it. She exulted. She went to bed, but could not sleep. She had a headache. Such a headache! A glorious headache! A thunder and lightning of a headache! End of chapter 23